This series was made possible by the Friends of Humanities Kansas. Welcome to Kansas 1972. A lot happened during that pivotal year, including the founding of Humanities Kansas. So, in celebration of our 50th anniversary, we'll be telling you stories from that era of Kansas history. So tune in, chill out, and get the lowdown on 1972. This is the rhythm of a city, any big city, anywhere. In this case, it is an American city, yet its problems and potentials are shared by cities all over the world. Today, American cities are facing a crisis. They are running a high fever of unplanned growth. They are overcrowded and overwhelmed. For the first time, Americans are beginning to seriously examine how their cities got that way. The story of the 20th century in the United States is partly a story of urbanization. While a little under 40% of Americans lived in cities in 1900, by 1950 that number had risen to 64%. In 1970, almost 74% of the U.S. population were city dwellers, and today, about 83% of us live in urban areas. And with the growth of urban spaces came a host of both opportunities and problems. Cities could be engines of economic development and cultural engagement, but unchecked expansion could also create, quote, blighted areas where residents lacked access to adequate housing, public services, and functioning infrastructure. In the decades after World War II, to address some of these issues, many cities engaged in policies and practices that came to be known as urban renewal. The intended purpose of urban renewal is to help improve neighborhoods seen as impoverished or in decline. This typically involves the demolition of existing buildings in order to construct new ones, as well as the improvement of infrastructure like roads and public spaces. While these projects are meant to revitalize neighborhoods, urban renewal has also been severely criticized. Long-standing residents are displaced as older buildings are torn down for new construction, and land is often taken via eminent domain for infrastructure projects. And the new businesses and residents who move into a community can fundamentally alter the character and culture of an existing neighborhood. And many neighborhoods targeted for urban renewal in the 1950s through 1970s were communities of color. In Kansas, almost every single large and medium-sized city engaged in some kind of urban renewal project in the second half of the 20th century. And even some small towns jumped on the urban renewal bandwagon. For example, in 1972 alone, if you search for urban renewal in Kansas newspapers on newspapers.com, you get over 1,700 hits. Now, clearly we can't do stories on all of these, but some towns in Kansas with significant urban renewal programs in 1972 include Salina, Garden City, Manhattan, Parsons, Olathe, Atchison, Coffeyville, and Neodache. And most of these urban renewal programs were also controversial at the time. Today, we'll be telling the story of urban renewal in Kansas in the early 1970s with a focus on one particular urban space, the city of Wichita. We'll hear about how plans to revitalize downtown Wichita threaten an important part of local African-American history. The big movement became in the 70s with urban renewal. And many of, this, many of those structures in this community were torn down. And how one woman successfully fought back to save an important community landmark. There was a young lady along with her family and other members of the church who said no. We'll also learn about how highway building in Wichita impacted a northeast black neighborhood. We saw a lot of black businesses and residences that were displaced as a result of the building of I-135. 
and how a contemporary mural project connects and celebrates two Wichita communities driven apart by urban renewal. It became a visual metaphor, right, for that division that we have between black and brown people and, and an opportunity to start have you know, to address, to have that conversation. Hello world, this is Wichita. <laughs> story of Wichita, its people, its progress. The story of your city and mine. This is Wichita. The city of Wichita is home to the Kansas African American Museum, personally one of my favorite museums in the state, whose mission is to, quote, make the Kansas African American experience resonate with every Kansan. When we speak about our mission, we really have in mind that African-American history is American history. And you cannot separate the two and get a complete picture or a better understanding. But often we only know uh, one side of history. And so we strive every day, our staff, our curator, our volunteers, our board, and even friends of the museum, the community to share with others the rest of the story, if you will, uh, the parts that they may not be familiar with or maybe heard a little bit, but not uh, the expanded version. That's Denise Sherman, executive director of the Kansas African American Museum. The museum has been fulfilling its mission for a quarter of a century now, but establishing the museum was no easy task. The building it currently is located in was almost demolished in the 1970s, and the journey to opening a museum in this historic space was a long one. The museum is currently located in the historic Calvary Baptist Church building downtown. The original Calvary Baptist congregation was established in 1878 to serve the spiritual needs of Wichita's Black community. African Americans began leaving the South after the Civil War in search of new opportunities. Those that came to Kansas became known as exodusters. As the African American population in Wichita continued to grow in the early 20th century, the Calvary Baptist Congregation built a permanent church building in 1913 at the corner of Water and Elm. But after just a few years, that building was deemed a fire hazard. The congregation built that early church with their hard sweat earned money and built it nights and weekends over a period of time. And that was really pretty devastating for them. They did comply. They um, tore down the church and rebuilt this one. And so in 1917, the second church, uh, which the one we are housed in today. The Wichita Eagle, November 11th, 1917. The laying of the cornerstone of the new Cavalry Baptist Church which is being erected at the corner of Elm and Water Streets, will take place this afternoon at 345. A splendid program will be rendered at 2.30 at the courthouse, where the congregation is now holding its services. The Masonic Lodge, Arkansas Valley, number 21, will conduct the ceremony. The exterior of this two-story neoclassical building is mainly brick, with some stone used in trim work and on the foundation. The main facade is five bays wide, with a large portico over the three central bays, supported by four Doric columns. Above the portico are the words in relief, Calvary Baptist Church. Like the 1911 structure, church members raised the money themselves for this new structure, which totaled around $60,000. That's over $1.4 million today. And almost all the individuals employed in the construction of the building, including the architect, were African-American. From the late 1860s until mid-century, the downtown neighborhood centered around Water Street was the hub of black life in Wichita. Remember, this is the era of segregation, and African-Americans were not welcomed in most white-owned establishments. Businesses owned by and catering to African-Americans, such as restaurants, doctors, attorneys, hairdressers, tailors, clothes cleaners, thrived in downtown Wichita. And Calvary Baptist Church was one of the centers of this community. However, as the 20th century moves on, the demographics of Wichita begin to shift. In the years after World War I, African-Americans had already began to move farther north in the city. 
space limitations in the downtown area, as well as opportunities to work in the North End, drew people to neighborhoods such as McAdams. Also, during and after World War II, more African Americans migrated to Wichita as the aviation and defense industries provided work opportunities. So by mid-century, the majority of African Americans in Wichita resided in communities north of downtown. But the downtown Cavalry Baptist Church continued to be an anchor for the black community. The congregation of Calvary Baptist Church was very um, instrumental in providing a, a base of hope and, and encouragement and livelihood for uh, African Americans. In the late 1950s, the construction of a new county courthouse led to the removal of some residences and commercial buildings that were once part of the historic downtown black community. But this was only the beginning. The first battle against urban blight was fought with the bulldozer. The big movement became in the 70s with urban renewal. And many of, this, many of the structures in this community were torn down. Uh, quite heartbreaking, if you really want to know. I'm sure it is not much different than any other city that experienced some of the same um, activities and some of the same fate, if you will. In 1972, following their church members, Cavalry Baptists built a new building farther north. The Wichita Urban Renewal Agency purchased the downtown church building, along with others in the neighborhood. Plans were being made to turn the space into a parking lot or perhaps be part of a planned downtown highway loop, which actually never came to fruition. Today, the Kansas African American Museum is located in this building. So how was the historic Calvary Baptist Church saved? Denise Sherman tells the story. When it came to tearing down this church, there was a um, young lady along with her family and other members of the church who said no. And that was Miss Doris Kerr Larkins. She was very committed to the historical aspect of this beautiful church that we're in and very committed to the, the preservation of the African-American story. She waged a, a, a war with others in the community to not let this building be destroyed. The Wichita Beacon, November 8, 1973. Mrs. Doris Larkins has a dream, a dream of a black historical museum, a dream of saving the physical structure of the old Cavalry Baptist Church. But like most dreams of this nature, Mrs. Larkins is faced with bureaucratic demands. Mrs. Larkins has lived in Wichita for 34 years since she was two years old. She became associated with Cavalry Baptist Church in the 1940s when her mother joined the church. She recalls vividly the bus ride from her home in northwest Wichita to the church. Her family lived then in what was primarily a white neighborhood. When the family arrived at church, it was like coming back into a black world, she recalls. Beginning in 1972, Doris Kerr Larkins and other members of the congregation fought a battle against the city's downtown urban renewal plans. And in 1973, they successfully saved the building from demolition. And part of this success was Kerr Larkins herself, again, Denise Sherman. I had a chance to uh, visit with uh, Ms. Doris Kerlarkin's sister and her niece several years ago, and they described her as a very passionate, very uh, compassionate woman. Uh, she played the organ here in the church and had a beautiful voice uh, and really brought a lot of soul, a lot of um, feeling to um, this church. And I can only imagine when she say, made the statement, this church must be saved, it really came from the heart, and uh, which was why it was so important and why people were so compelled to join her in her movement. She was just, she was just a, a congregant who loved her church and loved her God and loved her people. But saving the building was only the first step. The next stage was what to do with the building. It was her dream to convert the building into a museum or cultural center. Thus, the first National Black Historical Society of Kansas was formed in 1974. But getting through the red tape for securing the building and establishing a museum was almost as difficult as preventing demolition. Kerr Larkins appealed to the Wichita Urban Renewal Agency, the Historic Wichita Board, the Sedgwick County Commission, and even the Kansas State Historical Society. But Doris Kerr Larkins and her supporters persevered. 
and by the late 1970s, things were looking up. The Wichita Beacon, December 29, 1978. The old red brick church with a once handsome pillared portico and the old lodge hall stand out like sore thumbs in the area just north of the courthouse, but rescue may be near. The buildings presently are owned by Wichita's Urban Renewal Agency, but negotiations are underway for their purchase by the Sedgwick County Commission. Creation of the Black Heritage Museum in the church building has been the special goal of Doris Larkins, who, with other members of Wichita's black community, has helped amass a collection of archival materials and artifacts relating to the flourishing black business and professional district that grew up around the present courthouse site about the turn of the century. The Sedgwick County Commission did eventually acquire the Calvary Baptist Church building and helped to preserve it, as well as the Arkansas Valley Lodge building, another important landmark of the downtown black community. In 1993, the former church building was finally listed on the National Register of Historic Places. And in 1997, the historic church became the Kansas African American Museum. Doris Kerr Larkin's dream of not just saving the church building, but establishing a museum celebrating black history was finally realized. And the historical materials that she helped collect in the 1970s are part of the museum's collection today. Denise Sherman never had a chance to personally meet Doris Kerr Larkins as she passed away in 1994. But Sherman has talked to individuals who knew her and knew why saving the church was so important to her. She often uh, shared with those who weren't familiar with the early construction of this church that it was the black bricklayers who built this by hand and how symbolic that that was for uh, the local black community. And she said that many uh, Wichita black leaders, uh, again, who were very active in the early civil rights movement, um, were baptized in this church, and including our very first African-American mayor, A. Price Woodard, who was appointed. He was on the uh, city council and then was appointed for a year uh, as the first black mayor. You definitely get a sense of this history when walking through the Kansas African-American Museum today. This edifice gives you context when you're walking on the original uh, 100-plus-year floor that's wooden and slanted and soft in some places, or the railings of the original church, or the stained glass windows, or the steps. And to know that this was built by the Masons, by the hands of African Americans who saved their money and built this on nights and weekends over a period of several years, and to see it still stand and become very functional, it's very, it has a role, it, it, it gives us responsibility to learn more about ourselves. But the building itself is just part of a much larger story, as Denise Sherman explains. So while the motive initially was just to save the building and save the church uh, and not allow it to be bulldozed, if you will, because all of the other uh, buildings and really homes and places of our community were being destroyed, it really had a larger meaning. This building, this church, this first Black historical society, and now the museum really stands in testament of a structure, a place where more than a housing of artifacts and art and documents of our story, but we're really, we're really a statement of triumph, if you will. We are a connection to the past and to the present. Starting in 2019 to celebrate the legacy of Kerr Larkins, the Kansas African American Museum has given out the Doris Kerr Larkins Rising Star Award as part of their annual Trailblazers Award Ceremony. Here's how the museum describes the award. Quote, Ms. Kerr Larkins and many of her family and friends led the charge in the 1970s to establish the old Cavalry Baptist Church building on the National Registry of Historic Buildings, creating a home for the Kansas African American Museum. The Rising Star Award reminds Wichita and the state of Kansas about the sacrifice Doris Kerr Larkins made to preserve a historic piece of African American legacy in Wichita. In 2022, the award was given to Wichita musician and engineer Roy Moy III. Moy is a Grammy-nominated artist who uses music and performance to get kids interested in STEM topics, especially kids from groups underrepresented in the sciences and engineering. We'll put a link to his music on the episode webpage. 
While the historic Cavalry Baptist Church in downtown Wichita was saved from destruction, in our next story, we'll hear how the African-American community in Wichita's north side also faced threats from urban renewal in the 1970s. The city has been called man's greatest achievement. It has also been called a cesspool and a human zoo. Some cities are planned, but most just grow. As cities grow larger and older, great areas within them are allowed to die. We cannot minimize, you know, the importance of, of that particular effort because the, the saving of Calvary and, and, and its current usage as the Kansas African American Museum is, is extremely important because that pretty much represented sort of, sort of the last remaining vestige of, of that historic uh, African American community. That's Robert Weems Jr., the Garvey Distinguished Professor of Business History at Wichita State University. Weems is an expert in African American business history and has done work documenting the history of Black businesses in Wichita. Most of the, the impact of urban renewal in, in Wichita in terms of African Americans occurred not downtown around the, uh, the old Calvary Baptist Church, but in the McAdams neighborhood. Because in fact, by the late 19. 19- 50s when urban renewal really began in earnest in downtown Wichita with the building of the new courthouse, uh, there was only a, a relatively small percentage of the historic, you know, African-American community uh, still living in the downtown area. As African-Americans leave downtown Wichita, neighborhoods to the north start to look more appealing. Well, the you know from from what I've looked at it was a you know a question of you know more space in the McAdams area you know there were from from what I gather more more spacious you know homes that that African Americans could move into uh, there was a a park that used to be called McKinley Park but was named McAdams Park after I believe local African American law enforcement official that had a lot of positive community involvement. So the park was also a a positive draw for people because, again, it was a a place where African-Americans could experience the greenery and everything, you know, that we associate with a park. And that wasn't there wasn't that type of option or opportunity uh, in the downtown area for African-Americans. As the center of African-American commercial and social life in Wichita moved north, the McAdams neighborhood prospered. Part of post-war prosperity in general for many Americans at mid-century, including African-Americans, meant having access to home ownership. While African-Americans and other people of color faced significant discrimination in accessing housing, Neighborhoods like McAdams, where spaces where people normally excluded from home ownership, could better realize this part of the American dream. However, there was another item that was also seen as an important part of post-war prosperity. This is the American dream of freedom on wheels, an automotive age traveling on time-saving superhighways, Futurama's free-flowing channels of concrete and steel. The growth of the automobile and American car culture mid-century necessitated a better system of roads across the country. So in 1956, President Dwight D. Eisenhower passed the Federal Highway Act, which created the interstate system. And while the interstate system helped improve long-distance transportation in the U.S., the automobile age also meant congestion especially in urban areas. Most major cities in the world are developing hardening of the traffic arteries. Bumper-to-bumper, air-polluting, rush-hour traffic has become a way of life. Cities everywhere are searching for an answer. The building of the interstate system also coincides with the growing suburbanization of the United States. More people, especially the white middle classes, 
were commuting into cities to work with their cars and leaving at the end of the day to return to their new suburban communities. But by the late 1960s, post-war prosperity was in decline, especially in central cities. This phenomena of white flight, coupled with increasing deindustrialization, rising urban poverty, discriminatory housing policies, and a host of other factors, led U.S. policymakers to identify something they called the urban crisis of the 1960s and 1970s. Not all neighborhoods are pleasant, livable places. Some deteriorate to the point where there is often no choice but to destroy the crumbling houses and start over again. Anne Turpo describes some of the hardships caused by this urban renewal process. This looks like a deserted street, but it really is not. Three or four families still live here. More than six years ago, their friends and neighbors started moving away because urban renewal was coming to their block. Urban renewal policies were often meant to address aspects of this urban crisis. However, there was a pretty clear pattern in regards to which homes and businesses were seen as, quote, blighted and therefore disposable. The construction of the interstate highway system in nearly every major city in our nation indelibly affected our society. In many cases, interstate routes were chosen based on areas where land costs were the lowest or where political resistance was weakest. In practice, this meant that urban interstates cut through low-income and minority communities more often than not. Done in coordination with urban renewal initiatives, the construction of urban interstates was often used as a means to remove low-income housing, seen as slums or urban blight, to make way for new development. In fact, many of the communities destroyed by urban renewal and the construction of urban highways were once densely populated, vibrant, affordable, and accessible neighborhoods. And this scenario played out in multiple places in Kansas, including Wichita in the 1970s, with the building of Interstate I-135. The Wichita Beacon, October 13, 1971. A vast swath of land through the heart of Wichita, from north to south city limits, is desolate and deserted. Aside from the occasional rumble of a bulldozer demolishing a home and brisk Kansas winds gusting through trees, much of the area designed for the canal route, I-35 West, is tranquil. In some blocks, most property remains to be acquired for construction of the six-lane freeway. In other areas, some blocks have but one or two houses left to be acquired and cleared. The area from Kellogg North to 9th Street is deserted. Scars along this area created when many houses were torn out have generally been replaced by weeds. But land from 9th North to 17th is dominated by heavy earth-moving equipment and tall, ungainly cranes. Concrete pillars, rising 16 to 20 feet in the air and sinking 40 to 75 feet below ground, stand in straight rows like a battalion of soldiers moving south. It is in this area that construction of the multi-million dollar canal route is proceeding at a rather rapid pace. A heavy growth of underbrush and vast areas of vacant land have replaced hundreds of houses and businesses that were once beehives of activity. That neighborhood from 9th Street North to 17th Street, where construction was in full force, includes McAdams. And indeed, uh, when we look at the impact of, of urban renewal in Wichita, I would argue that the building of Interstate I-135 in the 1970s had a, a greater impact on more African-Americans than the urban renewal efforts uh, in, in downtown in the 1950s and 60s. Because literally, I-135 uh, went right through the pre-existing black community there. Uh, we saw a lot of black businesses and residences that were displaced as a result of the building of I-135. By the late 1960s, many people were aware of the negative effects of projects like urban highway construction, especially on poor people and minority communities. And activists from neighborhoods negatively affected by urban renewal policies were letting their voices be heard. Therefore, some urban renewal programs in the 1970s did try to remedy the shortcomings of previous projects. Robert Weems discusses one such example in Wichita. And interestingly enough, in the late 70s, there was a local agency called the, the Urban Renewal Agency that, in fact, submitted 
a, a, a grant to HUD in the amount of over $24 million to, in fact, revitalize the McAdams neighborhood. Because, again, the Urban Renewal Agency saw what the building of uh, I-135 did to uh, where the majority of African-Americans lived at that moment in time. And it was very interesting in that uh, the director of planning for the Wichita Cedric County Planning Office, in fact, endorsed this application proposal. However, the Wichita Cedric County Planning Commission did not. It's not completely clear why the Planning Commission ultimately rejected this McAdams revitalization plan. But Weems sees this rejection in the 1970s as still impacting the community today nearly five decades later. And, and, and I would argue, too, that part of the reason why the McAdams neighborhood remains underdeveloped to this day is that, uh, for whatever reason, the Wichita Central County Planning Commission did not want to, in fact, endorse a grant for over $24 million that would have uh, mitigated some of the negative impacts of the building of Interstate I-135 in the early 1970s. That represents a sort of quintessential historical what if, because indeed, if that application had been able to go forward and if that had been funded for $24 million, uh, we'd be having an entirely different conversation today. I asked Professor Weems about the McAdams neighborhood today and the overall status of Black-owned businesses in Wichita. In terms of where, you know, uh, African-American businesses are today, and I would say um, this is something that isn't just, you know, Wichita, but I had has, you know, national implications. I think, you know, COVID-19 uh, has had a, a significant impact on a lot of uh, African-American businesses, you know, among other things, a lot of these people could not get the, you know, payroll protection money that other small businesses got that enabled them to, uh, to stay open. But be that as it may, and again, as, as someone who, whose research specialty, you know, is African-American business history, uh, you know, there's a certain resiliency uh, in uh, the black business community here, as it is in in, in other locales, because uh, in fact, one of the organizations I'm involved with here is the you know Heartland Wichita uh, Black Chamber of Commerce, and and one of the initiatives that uh, the chamber does to promote you know African American business today, but linking it with the past is that there's been, you know, an establishment of a, you know, Wichita Black Business Hall of Fame. There's a lot that obviously can can be improved upon in terms of the state of, of, of current Black businesses in Wichita, but there's a certain resiliency and also too, uh, and we see this in other locales as well, we've seen a a greater diversity of operations owned by by African-Americans in Wichita today than, say, we saw, you know, 100 years ago. That resiliency of communities impacted by decades of neglect and failed policies is also apparent in our next story, which links urban renewal in the 1970s in Wichita to a contemporary public art project. All people need food, shelter, and air to breathe. They also need beauty and good design. The man-made environment must serve the needs of its people. It's not enough that we build new housing. We must, in a way, create new environments. If you're in the McAdams neighborhood in the northeast of Wichita, head west and pretty soon you'll hit a lot of barriers. Railroad tracks, walls, dead-end roads, and industrial spaces. 
One of these barriers visible, even from cars speeding along I-135, is the Beechner Grain Elevator. Until recently, it just looked like your typical grain elevator. Metal, gray, weathered exterior. Not really anything notable to look at. But that recently changed. I had been thinking about painting a grain elevator for a long time. Right, I moved to Kansas during my high school years. And if you're an artist and you live in Kansas, you have probably looked at a grain elevator and thought, wow, wouldn't it be cool to have a painting on there? So that kind of seed of a, of a painting on a grain elevator had been with me for, you know, since I moved to Kansas. Um, and then since I started doing work in North Wichita, uh, which there are a lot of grain elevators in, in that neighborhood, um, and organizing murals and working with different artists in the community, um, it kept coming up. That's Armando Menares, multidisciplinary artist, community organizer, and project director of the Horizontes Project in Wichita. Horizontes, which is Spanish for horizons, has created around 20 murals and public art projects on the north side of Wichita. The most visible of these is the Beechner Grain Elevator mural, which is the world's largest acrylic mural by a single artist. Executed by Colombian artist Glio, the mural contains colorful and vibrant representations of the people who have lived and worked in North Wichita communities, including immigrants, laborers, and indigenous peoples. The Horizontes project began when Minares was trying to put together a proposal for the Night Cities Challenge, a grant competition encouraging communities to develop economic opportunities and civic engagement in urban spaces. And while he loved the idea of a grain elevator mural, he knew that only one artwork would not be enough. So um, because I had developed deep roots in that community and had done a lot of research, that's how my kind of my, my mind naturally went to the geography itself where the Grand Elevator sits. Uh, it sits right along the train tracks, like most Grand Elevators do. And those train tracks really uh, go north and south in Wichita. They uh, bisect the city and splits uh, a neighborhood into two, right? On, on the west side of the tracks, you have what has been historically uh, a predominantly Mexican-American neighborhood, but you know it's, it's an immigrant community. You have Vietnamese immigrants there, Central American, et cetera. And on the east side of the tracks, you have what historically has been um, the Black and African-American community. We heard about the historic Black community on the east side of those tracks in our previous story. However, the community on the west side of the tracks has a similarly long and significant history in Wichita. Immigrants from Mexico and other Latin American countries came to Wichita beginning over a century ago to work on the railroad and also in the meatpacking industry. Many Latino families settled in the north end region of the city, establishing businesses, households, and community organizations. Similar to African Americans, the Latino community in Wichita faced discrimination and even segregation. And also like the African American community, the Latino community continued to grow in the middle of the 20th century, with the Northside neighborhood being a commercial and cultural center for Mexican Americans and other immigrant groups. But while close in proximity, these two communities were divided. So with that project, you know, with the Grand Elevator sitting literally in between, physically in between these two communities, um, it became a visual metaphor, right, for that division that we have between Black and Brown people and, and an opportunity to start having, you know, to address, to have that conversation. For Menares, part of that conversation includes the way that both African-American and Latino communities in North Wichita have been subject to similar effects of urban renewal. The um, kind of disruptive infrastructure that, that you often find in those neighborhoods and communities like um, interstate highways or industrial corridors, right? Often uh, industrial areas are kind of dead center or right next to neighborhoods that have a high population of immigrants and people of color. So all of those factors were present, right? We have I-135 that uh, goes right through the um, Northeast Wichita, the Black community. So the more you dig into it, the more you, you just start to understand how deep the impact right of, of 
of that development and the economic divestment and, and how it's impacted the, the fabric throughout those communities. And that digging in and understanding this history is an important part of the Horizontes project. While art can't directly solve all of our problems, yeah, I wish it could, the murals of Horizontes help to document this history, as well as celebrate the diversity and resilience of the Black and Latino Northside communities. One of those murals, uh, it's become one of the most popular. So many people just love it, and I see it pop up in social media accounts all the time, is Camilla Eaton's mural. And she painted a beautiful mural with these two blemen, a Black and a and a brown woman uh, holding hands up high in, um, and it says stronger together. Then it's a really great message about that, right? The solidarity of black and brown people. Um, I really love the fact that she is depicting two women with dark skin. That was also really important to us. Every time I see pictures of black or brown kids posting in front of those murals, it just, it warms my heart to no end. Public art in Wichita just really did not depict uh, racialized people. And it's so important for us to see ourselves reflected in, in the art, right, that is supposed to represent the city. Another critical aspect of representing the city of Wichita in Horizontes murals is acknowledging the presence and impact of Native peoples. Why we often, especially white people, use labels like Latino, Chicano, Mexican-American in ways that imply a kind of cultural homogeneity, a significant number of individuals who migrated to the U.S. from Mexico and other Latin American countries have indigenous heritage. And one of the Horizontes murals celebrates this fact. You know, another one that it's become a, a really popular uh, spot, it's at Evergreen Community Center. Fresco Exchange, this duo of Colombian artists, painted a, a mural by Tlaloc which is an Aztec god of rain. And it's also like this really beautiful blue and mural with lots of yellows and reds and oranges. In addition to connecting Mexican-American history to Aztec culture, the Evergreen Community Center mural demonstrates another crucial part of the Horizontes project, community involvement. And uh, that was a, a really great community involvement process where they used stencils to paint that you know, like the giant Tlaloc face. So uh, it gave, it providing a, a beautiful opportunity for community to show up and help cut out all of those stencils and, you know, just kind of build that community and, and have people a sense, give people a sense of ownership about the artwork that was being created, which is another one of the, um, the strategies that we deployed throughout the whole project is for people to participate, right? in, in the project as much as possible. The history and presence of Native Americans indigenous to the land on what is today the city of Wichita is visible in the Beechner Grain Elevator mural. In the center of that mural is a female figure wearing a bell-shaped golden yellow skirt. That skirt is meant to evoke the grass lodges built by the Wichita people along the banks of the Arkansas River. And if you look closely, you can see two figures on her skirt building the grass lodge that she's wearing. Armando Menares says they call her Miss Wichita, and she represents the indigenous foundations of the city. We have to, again, as we, if we are talking about geography, if we are talking about place and in, in, in sort of the spatial realities that we are building and creating, then we have to really then acknowledge who were here before us. And, and it's not just, I don't know, to give a land acknowledgement about the people that were here, which, you know, it's an important thing, but it's, it goes beyond that. It's really to honor and, and step aside and make space, right, for the Indigenous people that are still here, because it's still to this day. So often we talk about Indigenous people to North America as if they're like this thing from the past. And the reality is that they are here. I asked Menares about how people in Northside communities were interacting with the murals and the larger impact of the Horizontes project on the neighborhoods. You know, you see people posting in front of the murals and popping up in social media and senior pictures, you know, their graduation photos. You know, there's people with their graduation hat and gown in front of some of these murals, uh, which is really great. 
At first glance, posting selfies in front of murals and taking graduation pictures may not seem significant. But Minara sees this as meaning people in Northside communities have really developed a sense of ownership of the murals. And the sense of ownership of the murals being a product of the community as a whole was also facilitated by the fact that over half of the project artists were from the north side of Wichita. But creating murals is only part of Horizontes. So actually, as part of the project, we we had a pretty extensive engagement process where we were interviewing people um, in the community. We were door knocking, having a lot of one-on-one conversations. And there's a lot of stories that come out. And and as you would imagine, the stories were different depending on who you were talking to, the generation, right? The challenges were different for different generations. A grant from Humanities Kansas actually helped support this part of the Horizontes project. By recording stories, taking photos, and collecting materials about the history and present lives of individuals in Northside Wichita communities, the Horizontes project is much more than just a public art project. It's a project that documents and celebrates African American, Latino, and other Northside communities. All of these collected materials were part of an exhibition called The Color Line at the Kansas African American Museum in 2019. I find this particularly poetic, given the history of the Calvary Baptist Church building we discussed in the previous segment, where the Kansas African American Museum is currently located. Five decades later, a building almost demolished through urban renewal programs helps tell the stories of other Wichitans negatively affected by urban renewal. But the community impact of the Horizontes project and similar mural projects in other cities can be a complicated one. In my conversation with Armando Menares, I asked him about the potential role of murals in gentrification, which is kind of a contemporary form of urban renewal. As artists ourselves who were painting murals, right, in, in neighborhoods that, that have a, a long history of segregation and discrimination, we had to be really honest with ourselves about what role we were playing as artists in those communities. Um, because often, like you mentioned, you know, like in places in, in, in so many cities across the country, not just Kansas City or Washington, D.C., right, that the artists are used as tools for redevelopment and eventual displacement through gentrification. We're used as uh, a tool to, quote unquote, beautify an area, to clean it up, right, to make it look more appealing and attractive to um, investors and to future new tenants. Uh, so we had to be very honest about that and, and think about strategies to maybe prevent some of that. Again, once the work is done, you know, we really can't control how the development goes. But again, we wanted that conversation around artists being used as tools for displacement as well as gentrification to be at the forefront, right? We wanted that to, to we didn't want to shy away from that. Art is never neutral and public art especially. It can connect communities, tell their silent stories, and give people a sense of ownership and pride in their neighborhoods. But it can also help usher in the very kinds of displacements that it's often trying to critique. Just like many urban renewal policies, what was often well-intended can have discriminatory consequences. But ultimately, projects like Horizontes are about telling stories of people, especially people who often have not had their stories heard. You know, we couldn't lose the human element of this with this project because it is about community and the people living in those communities. Um, we couldn't lose, right, those stories and the people. Yeah. Uh, and that's what you know. When I say that art is not enough, it's like yeah, we have to. Uh, th- that's the beginning to a conversation, right? And and to see the people that live there, Horizontes wouldn't be what it is without seeing really seeing the people that live there. So the artwork is really about creating humanities conversations, complicated, sometimes difficult, but critical conversations. The center of the city, revived and embellished. Whatever the act, whatever its scope, the common element is design, and always an urgent will to make things better than they are now. Many urban renewal policies were aimed at making things better. But make things better how and for whom? 
While many attempts to revitalize neighborhoods in the 1950s, 1960s, and 1970s might have been well-intended on paper, they ended up targeting and dislocating communities who already had experienced decades of discrimination and economic disadvantages. We all want beautiful, well-functioning cities that benefit all its inhabitants. But how do we practically get there? These questions are still as pressing today as they were in 1972. So the next time you consider these issues, also think about today's stories from Wichita, which are just a small sampling of the effects that urban renewal policies have had on Kansans. Consider Doris Kerr Larkins and her hard-won fight against the demolition of the Calvary Baptist Church in Wichita as you walk through the Kansas African American Museum. Try to imagine the houses and businesses in the McAdams neighborhood that are now gone as you drive over I-135 in Wichita. And contemplate the way that urban infrastructure can divide communities with the image of a brown and black woman, arms raised in solidarity, as you go under the 13th Street Bridge in the north end of Wichita. Today, a new awareness to the problems of urban living has challenged the nation. The American city has come to its time of decision. Americans are seeking answers to problems which face their cities and cities all over the world. Although architects, scientists, and city planners have improved the American urban scene, they do not claim to know all the answers. They do know, however, that nothing they have ever done in the past will be good enough for the future. Catch you on the flip side. Humanities Kansas is an independent nonprofit leading a movement of ideas to strengthen Kansas communities and our democracy. Since 1972, HK's pioneering programs, grants, and partnerships have documented and shared stories to spark conversations and generate insights. Together with statewide partners and supporters, HK invites all Kansans to draw on history, literature, and culture to enrich their lives and to serve the communities and state we all proudly call home. Join the movement of ideas at humanitieskansas.org.